I think it's important that we uh, use the evidence we got now from the policy of lockdowns. And basically we understand that all these lockdowns during the pandemic, they represent a unique experiment. We have never tried anything like this before during the pandemics in the past. My reading of the evidence is that policymakers who are in charge, they should not panic. They should not be desperate. They should not follow the most uh, alarmist forecasting. They should use the evidence from this uh, pandemic to avoid the mistakes, the huge policy mistakes that were made by closing down societies and closing down our economies. Welcome to the IEA's YouTube channel. I'm joined today by two authors of the IEA's latest publication, Did Lockdown Work? The Verdict on COVID Restrictions. Their systematic review concludes COVID-19 lockdowns were, and I quote, a global policy failure of gigantic proportions. Their review finds that whilst the lockdowns failed to significantly reduce deaths at the same time as imposing substantial costs. So I'm joined here today in the studio by Lars Yunen, who is the Professor Emeritus at Sweden's Lund University, as well as previously an economics professor at the Stockholm School of Economics. Uh, he's also an advisor to a former Swedish Prime Minister. I'm also joined down the line by Jonas Herbie, who's a special advisor at the Centre for Political Studies, CEPOS, based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting us. Unfortunately, their third author, Steve Hankey of, of John Hopkins University, uh, can't be with us here today. Um, so I suppose the first question, really, for a lot of people when looking at this paper, and I'll throw this to you, Lars, why is it this economist writing about what many say is the field of epidemiologists or public health? Well, I'm an economist, and it's a task of economists to evaluate public policies. We evaluate school policies, defense policy, environmental policies, traffic policies, and now we evaluate pandemic policies. And lockdowns, the use of mandatory restrictions, is a unique policy experiment. And only economists can evaluate the costs and benefits to society of such a drastic measure. Not epidemiologists, not doctors. They are very restrictive in their perspectives. And that makes them sometimes even very dangerous from a public uh, economic policy. So, so um, coming to you, Jonas, uh, what, I suppose, is kind of the same question, what led you down the path of writing this book? Oh, it, it's actually a long story because I started out as a, as a lockdown uh, believer, I think you can call it. Uh, <laughs> I actually wrote two reports in the beginning of the pandemic where I we just assumed that the difference in death tolls between Denmark and Sweden was due to the differences in lockdown. Uh, but then after a month or so, uh, I saw that the curve bent in uh, Sweden more or less at the same time as in other European countries. And uh, and that's that started me my thinking on what else could explain this. And I'm sorry to say that my job is to think about how people react to regulation and to uh, incentives, uh, but but I, I strong I I failed to do that in the first uh, few months of the pandemic because I thought uh, regulations would work just as uh, the politicians planned, but uh, 
but as time went on, I, I grew more and more skeptic. And uh, then I did a, a short survey on the literature on uh, voluntary behavior. Um, but this, there was actually quite a lot of uh, literature, both uh, uh, what's called theoretical uh, literature, but also empirical uh, literature that, that showed that voluntary behavior changes were actually very strong. Uh, people reacted very strongly to this pandemic and also uh, fairly effective. Uh, so I published a short uh, review on this literature and um, and then time went on. I did some more reports on where I was just questioning the the effects of uh, lockdowns because you could see in data that sometimes the curve bent before lockdowns were implemented uh, here, here in Denmark. And uh, and then I think it was well, maybe in February uh, 21, uh, I was contacted by, uh, by Lars who asked uh, for the literature in New York, uh, and then we discussed back and forth, and then uh, I was invited uh, on this study that Lars and, uh, and Steve was uh, working on. Um, yeah, and, that, and now I'm here. Basically. Well, uh, here we are. Let, let's get into this. Um, well, my start of this was that I worked as an economic advisor for the European Commission, and in 2006, I saw a forecast by Neil Ferguson a UK epidemiologist, he said about 40 million people could die from the bird flu. And I asked my, uh, my uh, bosses, can I make a, a study of the effects of a pandemic on the European economy? And I did that. And it turned out that a, a pandemic would, of course, cause a lot of suffering among humans, but that would not be an economic disaster. And we ruled out, of course, the use of lockdowns. And after the forecasts of Ferguson of 40 million people dying, it turned out that it was less than a thousand people. So I became very skeptical of the kind of forecasting made by people uh, with that kind of background as epidemiologists. Well, and we'll come back to Ferguson, who ended up becoming quite yeah. a, f a famous character in the UK <laughs> um, through lockdown. Um, so, so Jonas, uh, what is your study? What, what does what does this book try? To, to do that um, is, is quite a kind of substantial <laughs> academic contribution. Yeah, I think the the main contribution is that, first of all, it is, it is a meta-study, so we cover a lot of uh, studies and try to, to draw the average uh, results from these, uh, result, uh, these studies. And second of all, we, we look at a special kind of studies that are the better handle uh, what you can call the control group. So, so basically, uh, when you do a, a study in in any kind of uh, science, you you would like and and you want to uh, see what is the effect of a kind of intervention, whatever it's medic, uh, a medical uh, in intervention or this uh, non this lockdown intervention. Then then you want to see what what would have happened if I didn't do anything. So you need a control group. Uh, and basically, there's uh, three ways to to do to make this control group. You could could either model it uh, as uh, last just uh, touched on uh, so the problem with that is that if you model the control group then you in the end it will the control group will act as the author of the study uh, assumes the control group will act because you're forced to use uh, assumptions about uh, the effect of of the the lockdown another con kind of control group that is often used is um is just to look at the past so uh so what happened before you lock down uh, and then assume that this trend will continue. So 
And before the lockdown, usually what you saw was that uh, the pandemic was growing um, and and then you just assume that the pandemic would have grown uh, even uh, if you didn't lock down. The problem with that control group is that you don't, there's a lot of stuff going on at the same time. So I, I said the people change behavior because there's a pandemic. Uh, you don't want to get infected and possibly die. So you, you become more careful. Uh, there's also seasonality and so on. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, things happening at the same time as uh, the politicians implement uh, lockdowns. Uh, so the kind of studies we look on is a diff what you call difference in different studies. Uh, and what they do is they, they say that, okay, if we have uh, a group of countries, for instance, and some of them close schools while others don't uh, close schools, then we can use the group of countries that don't close the schools as a control group to the countries that close the schools and then see if the if the pandemic's uh, path is, is different in these two groups of countries. Of course, in, in practice, it's a little more complicated, but but that's basically what you do. And uh, and that's the kind of studies that we look at. On. So, so you, you basically started with uh, over 19,000 kind of potential studies. And this is this is the meta-analysis part of your work. Yes. And then you, you went through those studies and identified the ones that could be usable and comparable, those difference in different studies where um, they've compared, so, you know, the introduction or the non-introduction of some kind of COVID intervention, which um, yes. leads you down to a relatively small mm. sample of studies you can then use. <coughs> um, we actually, I think uh, Lars and I had talked about how many studies that probably, probably were, were out there. And I think I said something like, I think there's maybe around 50. Uh, and we were able to find uh, 32. And then some of them weren't... Uh, it wasn't possible to to uh, make a standardized uh, measure that we can use in the in the, in the meta analysis. So we ended up with twenty two. So so fewer than we expected, but uh, but not much fewer. Yeah. So so the whole power of the kind of a meta analysis method, I suppose, and it's often described as the gold standard. Of course, mm -hmm. is that you can rather than you trying to do one study yourself, which is just just one study, um, you you can look across lots of different <laughs> studies at the same time. That's correct. I mean, the, the basic idea of meta-analysis is to condense what do we know, mm. where, where does uh, our profession stand, and then you use this to, in order to derive say, conclusions concerning our understanding of the effects of pandemics on lockdowns, uh, or, or, of lockdowns on the pandemic. Well, let's get to the results then. What, what did you find from, you, you went through the, all these different studies, uh, you then kind of got to a figure in terms of what you thought the actual impact of these lockdowns were in terms of preventing deaths. Well, the basic result is that lockdowns did have a negligible effect on, on uh, excess mortality. And uh, this is an effect uh, that we can find uh, across our meta-analysis. Then uh, we go into some detail, but still the basic conclusion is that lockdowns were a failed promise. And we say this because we start also to discuss what were the costs of lockdowns. It's very important that you have the whole picture looking upon both the potential health benefits of lockdowns and the cost to society, the economic, political and social cost to society and they were enormous. Um, yeah, and in your results, you came to the conclusion that um, COVID reduced, so COVID lockdowns reduced mortality by 
3.2%, which is not, of course, nothing. Your, your claim is not necessarily that you know, lockdowns did nothing or that COVID was not a serious disease that actually um, led to deaths, but just that the lockdowns didn't quite achieve their goals. And if you work that out, um, as I, I think you did join us for, for different countries in England and Wales, that would mean that lockdowns prevented 1,700 deaths. Um, across Europe, you'd, you'd say 6,000 deaths, and in the United States, 4,000 deaths. Now, um, if I can bring you in here, uh, Jonas, uh, some people would say, well, okay, you've concluded lockdowns did prevent deaths. That's, that's great. You know, what, what, what's wrong with using lockdown policies then? You know, shouldn't we use any policy that potentially saved people's lives? Oh, that, there, are, there are many pol policies out there that can prevent uh, death. Uh, you could uh, set the speed limit to five kilometers per hour uh, and then people won't die in the traffic anymore and that would prevent a lot of uh, death. Uh, but that doesn't make it a good policy because you have to uh, also consider the cost of the policy. And with traffic, they are very... Yeah, in the, in the UK, we have a similar system called um, NICE, uh, which is almost yes. an, an ironic name for an organisation that has to make, I think, very difficult kind of trade-offs in terms of what particular treatments are worth funding. I think it's a similar principle with um, the Department for Transport in the UK makes a decision about whether or not they're going to fund some kind of road improvement based upon how many lives I think it might save. And if they you know, think the road improvement is going to cost, you know, say, 10 million, but it's going to save three lives, then it might not necessarily be worth making that kind of road improvement. Um, the underlying...
Yeah, Lars, this is, this is the key point, isn't it? That um, your, your conclusion is that uh, COVID lockdowns presented, prevented 3.2% of deaths in that first lockdown period. Now, of course, Professor Ferguson, who you referred to earlier, said they could potentially reduce deaths between 80 and 100%, um, and that the amount of death reduction would be um, something like 500,000 by going into lockdowns. I mean, these forecasts are basically wrong. And why are they wrong? Well, they are wrong because people adjust uh, not by uh, orders from uh, the government. They adjust by voluntary changes in their behaviour. And I think that's a very important point. If we just inform the public about the risks of a pandemic, we are able to find a good measure, a good alternative to mandatory restrictions on people's behaviour. And I think we should always, when we discuss uh, the result of the lockdowns, to keep in mind that we have to compare the cost with the benefits. That's so important. Otherwise, we can get lost completely. Um, yes, yeah, so, so I suppose then the, uh, the obvious next question for you, um, Jonas, as well, is why, why weren't lockdowns effective? Because I think that's kind of almost counterintuitive, which is, of course, uh, or, or barely effective, because, of course, you would think that shutting down schools or preventing people from leaving their homes, that would reduce the spread of uh, infectious disease. Um, why do you think that wasn't the case, or at least not at a substantial level? You're not a skeptic of the, the theory of uh, you know, disease and germs. <laughs> Yeah, of course, this is a kind of a key element of the study here, which is you're not necessarily um, comparing lockdowns to do nothing or, or you know, the community doing nothing. You're comparing um, lockdowns to what Sweden did, which is um, substantial voluntary action as well as some legal restrictions. Yeah.
Bas? Well, let's look ahead and look, let's look into the future. And I think it's important that we uh, use the evidence we got now from the policy of lockdowns. And basically, we understand that all these lockdowns during the pandemic, they represent a unique experiment. We have never tried anything like this before during the pandemics in the past. And my reading of the evidence is that policymakers who are in charge, they should not panic. They should not be desperate. They should not follow the most uh, alarmist forecasting. They should use the evidence from this uh, pandemic to avoid the mistakes, the huge policy mistakes that were made by closing down societies and closing down our economies. It has cost us so much. And these costs, we will have them far into the future. All the young people missing their education, all the problems with a sharp rise in public debt. The costs are enormous, the benefits are practically nil. For many people who look at the history of lockdowns, they kind of take a, I suppose, a simple view that says, well, governments induced lockdown and then cases came down. Why don't you think that's a reasonable explanation of what happened? That doesn't fit with the pattern. Those countries that had the most lockdowns, the highest stringency, also have the highest excess mortality. So I read this as a political economy reaction. A government seeing high, a high rise in mortality, they try to grab something. They, have, they feel a pressure to do something, to show that they are active. So they use lockdowns. But the lockdowns per se have not reduced excess mortality. Those countries that used the least amount of, of lockdowns, like Sweden, Finland and Norway, they also have the lowest excess mortality over time. And that's a very strong argument against using stringent measures like lockdowns. Um,
So, so I, I mean, I should say, and you know, anyone who, who had uh, read what I was saying at the time is probably a lot more sympathetic to lockdowns than, than um, your paper suggests. And, um, and I think, though, we should obviously be open to, to changing our views. Um, I think there's a, a decent case that you, you've made here, and quite persuasively, that different stringency levels in lockdowns in Europe didn't have much effect. Um, you could say, arguably, that there was a, a seeding of COVID from Wuhan into Europe and then spread through that, particularly through that period where people went off to um, go ski uh, and, and spread like wildfire. And then by the time there was a kind of public health response, it was too late. It was too late in a lot of respects. There wasn't enough testing. Um, there wasn't enough public information in that early stage, which led to a lot of deaths. In, and so it's something you discussed in the case of Sweden, that there were a lot of deaths there. Um, though if I, could, if I could compare that for a moment, and I don't think your study necessarily goes and discusses it, but, but the statistical analysis doesn't necessarily go as much into some of the places in the world that were more successful in terms of preventing um, uh, as many deaths. So China itself, ironically, being a substantial example here where they locked down extremely hard, um, you can argue far in a far too authoritarian way. Same in, in my home country in Australia, um, was both had the advantage of being able to close borders, um, put people into quarantine hotels, not 100% effective, but at least some, to some extent effective, and then also doing these very harsh lockdowns as well in the community. Now, I think when you look back, you, you do see as a matter of fact that um, those, those countries ultimately did have a lot less COVID deaths. It then took mm. a, a while to open up. Um, you know, they were too slow with their vaccines. Uh, more people you know, suffered and were restricted. And you know, terrible things happened in those lockdowns as well. Don't get me wrong. It's, I'm not saying that Australia went the perfect way or anything. But it does seem if you look at a, a kind of broad basis that, well, the European lockdowns weren't necessarily that effective because it was already seeded in the community. It wasn't possible to kind of lock, prevent COVID spreading entirely. Um, that there was an alternative potential model that at least some countries were able to adopt. Yeah, no, I think it's important to look upon Europe. It's not an island. The European economies are so closely integrated. We have the movement of people, movement of virus all over the place. So you couldn't, it's not the Fiji Island or Australia or New Zealand. That's a different story. So we look upon the United States and the European countries in our study, because that is relevant for the policymakers mm. to learn from. Do you think there's any potential conclusions here, though, that 
if you if you do see a potential a virus coming, you know, shutting borders, for example, might not be the the worst response. At least if that is effective in terms of stopping it from getting in in the first place. Um, and then if, if that works, then you don't have to worry about any of the other responses, be it voluntary or non-voluntary. Um, and if you have a you know, very good global surveillance system that the World Health Organization is meant to give us, may, maybe that's also a potential response, not these domestic lockdowns, but you know, some kind of different global response. If you argue like that, why should you just close borders? Why shouldn't you close borders within every region? That like Wales and Scotland should just be, have no communication with England. I mean, if you push that argument, you just see that you, you would close down whole, the whole of society. And our study shows that that kind of policy is not constructive. The costs are too high, the benefits are very small. I was going to get to this, which, which I think is quite interesting and important point you make, that the, the, you were initially persuaded by the idea that Sweden was doing worse because um, it had failed to lock down. But I think you've now come to the conclusion that you're about to come to, which is was more to do with the fact that um, Sweden uh, did comparatively worse to other kind of nearby Scandinavian countries um, because of timing.
Lars? Well, you have to look upon the whole period when you examine uh, the record of lockdowns. And the whole period, I mean the whole period of pandemic, 2020-2021, to see what is uh, the excess mortality. And uh, when you do that, you find that there are differences in timing across countries. But these differences, they disappear as time goes by. Mm. And it's the same thing during the, the Black Death when it hit Europe in the Middle Ages. Uh, some countries were hit earlier, some countries later, but overall, after the pandemic, after the Black Death, the death numbers were say, converging. Mm. And this is convergence, I think, that we should keep in mind when we look upon the total effects of uh, mandatory restrictions. Yeah, I think there's an interesting kind of almost similar case study in Australia where the, the first Spanish flu wave didn't hit um, in, I think, 1916. But then uh, basically some people came back from uh, World War One a little bit later and then ended up kind of having similar impacts despite uh, attempts at closing borders and um, locking things down. I think it's worth dwelling a little bit more here on, and I know your, your study has a bit of discussion of this, so you don't necessarily study this specifically yourself though, um, the question of what were the costs of lockdown? Because I think any, any analysis he needs to say is, as you were saying at the start, well, on the one hand, there were not substantial um, reduction in deaths because of lockdowns, but the, on the other hand, there were, um, by your analysis, extremely high costs. Well, the costs are many. In our book, we mentioned there are economic costs, there are social costs, and there are political costs. And the economic cost is, of course, the decline in uh, uh, growth, economic growth, the rise in unemployment, the huge number of bankruptcies, people getting poor. And the economic cost also involves a sharp rise in public debt in many countries. We see now uh, countries all over the world having uh, public debt uh, levels that are a challenge for policymakers. How can they manage it? And then we also see a rise in inequality. Poor people were more exposed to lockdowns, were harder hit than high-income people who could stay at home and do continue with their work. But if you were a taxi driver working in a restaurant, of course you were hit much harder uh, in that, uh, due to the lockdowns. And then we had the damage to children's education. The, fall in human capital that will be a very costly effect for decades from now on. And then we have the, a number of other social costs, rising crime, rising family uh, murders and, and uh, f damages within the families. And then we have the threats to democracy. We see a pattern across the world that regimes that were anti-democratic became even more anti-democratic. And that's a very high cost of the lockdown policy. So if you add all these costs or the effects and measure them with the, and compare them with a very small uh, positive health effect of lockdowns, the calculus just tell us, don't do it again. It's a failure, too costly to us.
prevent the kind of innovation you might have, you know, improving air quality and airflow, for example, being one or doing your own. There's many ways you can do this. Yeah. Um, this is this book is the combination of um, a, a previous process you've been through um, developing working papers. I'm interested in, I, I suppose, how you've responded in, and incorporated any of the, the criticism um, that you got in the earlier versions, and, and what what makes this final uh, book the um, kind of, I suppose, stronger and and more robust. Lots. Yeah, I would like to stress that this is a process of evaluation. Of course, our book is not the final verdict on the policy of pandemics. I hope it will start a constructive discussion and debate about the use of lockdowns. And of course, new research will be forthcoming, new results will be forthcoming. As the longer we have a perspective of the pandemic, the more we will know about it. But we have to start with this. And I hope that our book will be a good starting point for future research, inspiring other researchers to see what were the costs and what were the benefits of the policy of lockdowns. Well, thank you very much, uh, Lars and Jonas, for joining me today for this um, very fascinating discussion. For those who are interested 
in learning more about IEA research and, and more specifically um, reading the study themselves and coming to their own uh, conclusions and uh, building and critiquing and continuing this debate, uh, do visit the IA website, IA.org.uk. Um, the, the book's name is Did Lockdowns Work? The Verdict on COVID Restrictions. Um, it's co-written by uh, three excellent authors um, in the studio here today. Uh, Lars um, Yunon, who is a professor at Sweden's Lund University, um, down the line, Jonas Herbie from uh, the CPOS think tank in Copenhagen. Um, thank you very much for uh, joining today and um, looking forward to continuing the discussion.